Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. I say it all the time, but I'm glad that's so difficult. You guys are a hard crowd to control. Uh, and, and my nobody ever taught me to, you know, handle a classroom like a proper grade school teacher. So I have no control over you. Um, but I'm glad that you're having fun saying hi to each other um, and just catching up after the week. It's good to be gathered to worship as the body of Christ. And it's good to talk to one another and, and to be present to one another. And I, I just, I love this. It's my favorite part every week, uh, just watching that. Um, we're in the back end of Hebrews 12. If you were here the last couple of weeks, what's it been, three weeks that we've been in Hebrews 12 so far? We've taken a little slowly through the first 12 verses, but it's been helpful to give us the foundation of where we're going. We're about to have a conversation about holiness, um, but before we jump into that, before we jump into this idea of approaching God, let's go back really quick. What's been going on in Hebrews 12 so far? The chapter begins by reminding ourselves that we're not doing this alone. We're not the first ones to journey with God. We're not the first ones to have lived. And if you remember when we were, when we were working through Hebrews 11, we followed this great cloud of witnesses, all of these brothers and sisters that have gone before us and experienced what it is to be in relationship with God. That's super helpful. That we're, this is not new to us. And then in verses 9 and 10, as Alex preached through last week, we see that God disciplines us. And what is the value of being disciplined? It's very much for our own benefit. It reminds us that we are sons and daughters of God. That if he did not discipline us, it would be a sign that he didn't care one way or the other what we were like or what we did. But that does matter, that he draws us into himself. We learn, too, that you're becoming more like Jesus in your struggles, that while all of your struggles may not be from God, some of them are, are quite self-inflicted, that God in his providence takes those experiences to draw you back into himself. He uses that to help discipline you, to help grow you, to help sanctify you. And really, it's to promote holiness. And we'll get into a bit, to a bit more of what that is. But, but think of it in terms of becoming more Christ-like. And that is the best possible thing for you. As we become more Christ-like, we experience something of what it is to be wholly human, to not miss out being distracted by something else. This is Seattle. We want to live life to the fullest. And we have a lot of definitions as to what that might be. But the biblical definition of living life to the fullest is to become more Christ-like. Because in that, you'll start to find your satisfaction. In that, you'll start to find your fullness not in your pursuit of something else. God designed you, 
and you should follow what he's designed you for. He's intended that you live a certain way, and that's for your own benefit. All right, let's jump into chapter 12, There's, he, or, or into verse 12, rather. And our author, the author of Hebrews, he's, he's starting off with an encouragement. He says this, he says in verse 12, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight your paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Um, he goes back to an athletic metaphor. I'm not a runner. I know a few of you are. <laughs> I know a few of you are. But you know to take care of your body. Before, I mean, I, this is why I start walking. I don't start by running. If I'm going to get into a running regimen. But he, he's, he's reminding you to, to take care of yourself. And he's using it metaphorically in, in a, speaking of your physical condition. But he is very much speaking to your spiritual condition as well. Being emotionally or spiritually injured is a problem. And rather, let, rather than stuffing those things in a closet and not touching them, he very much wants you to bring them to the surface and deal with them. He says to strive for peace with everyone. Again, he's looking at what the marks of a Christian are. And one of the primary marks of a Christian is that they're striving for peace. Um, it's worth making a distinction. Meg helped me out with this earlier this year. She's one of our pastoral assistants here. She really helped me think this through because I realized in my own life that I had a habit of peacekeeping and not peacemaking. Peacekeeping means that I let a lot of things go. I didn't really deal with them on a practical level, but I would kind of shove things aside just to keep moving forward. But in, but in peacemaking... You're, you're directly confronting the issue. You're taking the time to accurately assess the situation, to confront people in love, and to confront people seeking restoration, seeking forgiveness, and seeking healing. That is what it is to make peace. That's what it is to make peace. And lastly, he says, we're to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And, and this is really going to become um, the thrust of this passage that he has. Because as we get to the end of it, it's all about approaching God. And how can you possibly approach God? None of you are in it of yourselves holy, morally perfect, or any of, that, any of those things. And so it is dangerous for you on your own to approach God. He's safe He's beautiful, but for those who are not holy, it's incredibly dangerous. Um, and we'll get into that. I think, I think it's worth breaking down a term like holiness. And, and, and one of the better ways to do that is, is to trace a concept through Scripture. If you want to define something, see how it's been used before. And you can go, this is called biblical theology. It means you, you try to see the whole stretch of it from beginning to end. What, what is happening with this idea of holiness? What can we get out of that? So let's go back. Um, first of all, the, the Hebrew term, and this is an audience that would have understood very much Hebrew tradition 
in, in Hebrew culture and all of those things. And so their concept around holiness is very much grounded in Jewish tradition, in the Hebrew definition here. And so the Hebrew term kodesh speaks to having to do with, with separation. Um, trying to think of a clean way to do this. If you have a big rainstorm out there and somebody goes, holy buckets, that's crazy. Again, the cleanest thing I could come up with there. It, it, it's, it's what they're saying in that is that this is crazy. This is not the normal Seattle spitting rain, but this is something that's unique, something that's set apart. It's this massive rainstorm, which in theory we'll get this weekend. We'll see. But there's something about God. When we say that God is holy, one of the key things we're saying about God is that he is unique. He is set apart from everything else, untouched with sin in his case. Go to Adam and Eve in the garden. Why is it that Adam and Eve are able to dwell with God? And why is it that after their little fruit exchange, they can no longer dwell with God? Because at one point they're considered holy, set apart with God, able to dwell with him. But then after they've sinned, their sin has separated them from God. And now they have to be put at a distance. And now you can pick up the storyline as, as you go into uh, the wilderness after God takes the Israelites out of Egypt and he, he, he takes them into the wilderness, he guides them there, he gives them instruction about how it is that they could possibly dwell with him. And what is it? Well, there's, there's being clean and, and unclean. There's standards by which you would understand where you are with God. Because what is the threat? If you're the high priest and you're to go into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, that is, that is where he came directly into the presence of God, what would happen if he was possibly unclean? Poof. He'd be done. He'd be dead. They tied rope to this guy so they could pull him out. Why? Because to God, holiness is vitally important, and God cannot dwell with those who are not holy, with those who are not holy. Move forward a little bit more. Isaiah 6, we, we, we sang, holy, holy, holy. That is where we get that song, or, or the, the start of that song, at least, is in Isaiah 6, talking about the holiness of God. And what happens is Isaiah has this experience, he has this vision um, of himself being in the presence of God. The most terrifying possible thing to a Hebrew person would be to be in the presence of God because he's dangerous to those that are unholy. And he's desperately concerned as to whether or not he'll be destroyed. But it goes much better for him. Because in that vision, the seraphim takes a coal from God, a hot coal, and it touches it to Isaiah's lips. And in that, God's holiness is imputed to Isaiah. That's a whole new thing. Because we've had these clean laws and, and, and to be clean or to be unclean, and you could touch a dead body and you would be made unclean. You could do any number of things to be made unclean, but what would possibly clean you? 
And now we have this image of God himself providing a path by which you could be considered holy. Not through Isaiah's action, but through God's action. That God could make you holy. And then we see this picked up even more so because we, remember in Jesus, we see God among us. And what, what blew their minds was this idea that Jesus could go out and he could physically touch a leper. He could heal them. And was Jesus made unclean? Not a bit. Not a bit. But the leper was made clean. Not only was he healed, but he was made clean through God's touching of him. Okay, so how could we possibly approach God if on our own we are unholy? How could we possibly approach a holy God? Well, through, through his touch, through, through his action, through him bringing us in. Okay, verse 15, let's continue. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and, and by it that you might be defiled. We come back to that idea of clean and clean, right? That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, even though he sought it with tears. So our author picks up the language of the Old Testament again. He says this, this idea of failing to obtain the grace of God. This would have said something, uh, this likely would have taken a Jewish mind back to Moses working with the, with the Israelites and not being able to enter into the promised land. It's not finishing well. And he's, what he's encouraging them is, is when we're thinking about holiness, when we're thinking about encountering God, it's one thing to bind yourself up. It's one thing to get yourself ready to run. That's good to be faithfully present to oneself. But he also is encouraging you to be aware of those that are around you. How do you become sanctified? How do you ever see things that you're blind to? You need your community. You need your church. You need to be known to other people in the church so they can help you see things that you do not see on your own, that you might justify out on your own. We're making sure that we all come, that we obtain the, the grace of God. He, he warns them too, he says, he brings up this idea of the root of bitterness, which, which comes from uh, the language in Deuteronomy, and the, the idea of defilement. He's saying, don't let something come in and be a cancer within the congregation. I think a lot of this often goes back to peacemaking as well. Don't let something divide you. Don't let something draw you away from God. Something like masks or, or whatever else, or, or getting COVID shots. The church ought to be set apart because it's a people that figures out how to work these things out and dialogue and talk these things out together. This should not have been an issue that separated us. We ought to be markedly different from the rest of the world in how we handle conflict and how we're able to work through those things. We're a body that helps each other see our blind spots, 
His concern was that they would take the practices of their Canaanite neighbors, and that ought to be our concern too. Are we taking the practices of our Seattleite neighbors, being at odds with everything? Or are we living the markedly different life? Faithful presence with one another, knowing one another, walking alongside one another. He continues, he says, we're not to be sexually immoral. We're to, what we do with our bodies and with our minds matters to our holiness. And the Greek term that's used here is it's porneia. It's, it's this idea of, it's, it's literally a catch-all word that is anything you could possibly come up with that would defile you in a sexual way. It's not restrictive to any particular culture. Anything you might come up with that would draw you away from, from holiness and would draw you away from God's design for us sexually. And then he brings up Esau, uses Esau as a, as a case study for what it is to be unholy. So the, the Genesis account of Esau doesn't make any charge of sexual, sexual immorality clear. And so, depending on how you read the Greek here, I, I, I don't know if that's referring to him or not, but it does say that Esau was counted as unholy. And we have an example of Esau impulsively giving up the gift of God for something in the very short term. And I think that's the thrust of his argument here. He wants you to see this. Esau lacks any sense of value in spiritual things. He desires God's blessing, but he doesn't actually want to walk with God. He desires the benefits of repentance without actually having a heart of repentance, which is why I don't think he was able to go for it. Esau is distant from God. God's goal is to make us holy, to share in what it is to be holy. And if I'm not in a, in a state of holiness, when I encounter God, this is going to be a problem for me. This is not a result of your work. To go back to the Isaiah example, I, I, I want that to be clear. We, we want to call each other to be sanctified, to, to, to continue to grow towards holiness. But your holiness is not achievable by yourself. You, you do need Christ's work, and this is undoubtedly the result of Christ's work. We're imputed with his righteousness because he was perfect and sinless and died on our behalf, that his holiness could be counted towards us, that our record would be removed, both good and bad, would be removed, and that his record would be placed in place of ours. That when we come to encounter God, no longer is it Isaiah's stance of being in, in fear, but that we can fall into the arms of God like this, like a little kid reaching up to, to his dad, fully expectant of, of grace and welcoming and comfort because he's made you holy. Here's the thing. This, this next section is going to compare ways that you can approach God when you jump from an airplane, you either have a parachute or you don't. But you will encounter Earth. It's inevitable. And uh, you will not land this. 
without a parachute, but you will land. The same thing applies to holiness. In the end, everyone who has ever lived will encounter the holy God. It is inevitable. You will either get there with holiness, a parachute of sorts, or without. And the result of that is either a real nice touchdown under canopy, or it's a solid thud. It's a solid thud. Let's read in verse 18. He says this, he says, for you have not come uh, to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg to hear no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. And even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You all know what he's talking about? No. <laughs> Wait, what's he getting at? Um, he's, sorry, my mic is messing around here. The original hearers would have known exactly what he's talking about. He's coming to a place that can't be touched. He's, there's blazing fire and darkness and gloom. There's a tempest, which is like a, just a massive storm. Just think of the nastiest, most vicious, violent storm you've ever seen. And the sound of a trumpet. If it doesn't come immediately to, to mind, read Exodus 19. This is exactly how they encounter Mount Sinai. They come, they come out of the wilderness and they land at Mount Sinai. Sorry, my mic is all over the place. I apologize. Big ears, but they don't hold the mic on. Um, they come to Mount Sinai. They just got bailed out of Egypt. They were enslaved there. They're brought here. And God takes his, his, his people, and he's, he's going to come to talk to Moses. He's, he's going to bring the law to the people. He's going to dwell with them for a moment. And how could that possibly be that an unholy people could have God dwell with them? Well, and, and they're, they're not holy. They're not clean. And you see just how dangerous it is. He tells them, even if a beast were to touch the foot of the mountain, you got to stone the thing or shoot it with arrows. That's the instruction. Same thing for a human. If you, if you were to come to even touch this mountain, you would be destroyed by it. And they are warned for several days. And, and Moses is given a procedure by which he can... Uh, by which he can make the people temporarily holy before God. He, he has several days to consecrate the people, to make themselves ready. And he, he's got to follow these procedures by which they can be with God. And then Moses can go up with the trumpets. It says this, I'll read part of Exodus 19. He says, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. See, this all sounds familiar to us now. So all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought, out the, or brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took a stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire, and the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. The whole mountain trembled greatly, and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in a thunder. Moses is not doing okay. <laughs> he's 
incredibly afraid to encounter God. We're going to see the contrast here in verse 18. But I think it's worth noting before, before we get there, there, there are people that have rejected God. And to use the words of, of, of Romans 1, they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, right? There's nothing more terrifying and frightening in your human experience than encountering God without being holy. To be in his presence is beyond frightening. To hit the earth without a parachute, as it were. I think it's worth saying, too, we've had several warnings in Hebrews about an empty faith. About an empty faith. If you read back on Hebrews 6, I think it's really helpful where, where it starts to talk about that a bit, where you have people that have all of the trappings of faith, all of the trappings of Christianity with zero substance. They're fooling themselves. They're fooling themselves. They would say that they would confess that Jesus is Lord. I mean, go back to Matthew 25, right? The lambs, and the, the goats that are being, that are being separated out. They all say, Lord, Lord. And yet Jesus says, some of these, I, I, I don't know who you are. This is the importance of going back up and doing honest business with yourself, honest self-assessment with yourself, asking your community to speak into your life. Do you see me growing? Do you see me over the years becoming more Christ-like? Or am I really just stagnant at this point? It's worth having an honest question with yourself. You may be wearing a parachute backpack, but if there's no chute inside, it doesn't really matter. The thud sounds an awful lot alike. Verse 18 specifically says that you have not come here. So our author is assuming something about his audience. This is how it leads off. You're not here. He's assuming that the audience that he's talking to has been imputed, has been marked as holy by the work of Christ. He's assuming that they have an authentic faith, that they have humbled themselves before God, that they recognize their need for him, that they're those who have accepted Jesus as their, as their savior. God's holy presence for them is a party. It's really really good news because in this instance his aim is to draw you in it's not to push you out so let's read let's read here this next section it says but you have come this is the contrast from you have not come to but you have come to mount zion and to the city of the living god to the heavenly jerusalem he's talking about you know in in the end of revelation where where we, finally, everything has been made right again. No more sickness, no more tears, no more broken, no more sin, no more kids getting cancer, no more miscarriages, no more any of that. You're, you're, you're in the heavenly Jerusalem, and you come in to this vision of innumerable angels in festal gathering. They're having a feast. They're having a freaking party. This is as good as it gets. 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God. You see, in everybody else that went before you, everyone who has lived out this experience to journey with God, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And so he's describing something quite different than the fear and the terror that we would have had before. He's telling them they're going to a party. You're going to see all who are enrolled in heaven. You're going to see so many angels. They're innumerable. They're all celebrating. They're all part of this festival. They're all worshiping God. And they see Jesus, their mediator of the covenant, whose blood speaks a better word. Remember, remember Genesis 4 with Abel, right? His brother slays him. And what does his blood say? His blood is to come back with vengeance. It's looking for revenge. Abel's an innocent man who is slain, and his blood speaks a word of vengeance. But by sharp contrast, Jesus is an innocent man. Jesus is the better Abel, who though innocent and though his blood is also shed, his blood doesn't speak vengeance, but grace. But grace, this is the blood that won't separate you. It's the blood that'll bring you in if you'll accept it. That's a, it's providing the path by which we could be holy. That's totally different. Pick up in verse 25. We're about to see a shaking. <laughs> it says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And, and I got to think that the author in his mind is thinking about the generations of prophets that were rejected by the Israelite people. I mean, even Jesus is rejected by so many of the Jews. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? So if you've rejected God's messengers before and God was faithful to distance himself from you, how much more when the warning comes from heaven, would you, how stupid would you be to, to, reject, to reject this? He says, uh, at that time his voice shook, uh, shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more, I will, not, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The whole thing shakes here, right? This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have, that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is the contrast, right? This, this is not a manufactured kingdom. This is God's kingdom. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When he talks about shaking the earth, it goes back to the prophet Haggai. And the imagery that we're getting there is this massive earthquake just like at Sinai, just like chaos for everything but the kingdom of God to which you have been welcomed to, to which you've been invited to, 
to which you've been made holy so that you can enter. All of creation will shudder like Sinai, but the kingdom will not be shaken loose. God's eternal kingdom is exempt from this. I like, how he en- I like how he ends this. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a, a consuming fire. So he focuses our response. Where have we gone today? What is it to be holy? What is it to, to look at yourself and where you're at before God? Where is it to walk alongside the rest of your community and where they're at in holiness? And then for the New Testament believer, for those of you who who follow Jesus, who have humbled yourself and are growing as disciples in Christ, you come to him and you are welcomed into the unshakable kingdom, experiencing what it is to be wholly human in the presence of God. And he says the only response that you could possibly have ought to be one of gratitude and worship. We're to be grateful for receiving such a kingdom, and so so we should further respond in worship of our worthy, almighty, holy God, who so lovingly calls you sons and daughters and welcomes you into the family. Let's prepare to respond in worship, but before we do so, I just want to invite Lisa up. Uh, one of the things we do here is we, we want to take time to give space in our liturgy to reflect and to think, not just to hear the word taught, but to come before God in reflection before we sing and go to communion. And so, Lisa, get your mic ready. 